everybody bring it in happy spring we have another episode here of the read option locked and loaded i'm flying solo today uh, we got a whole lot to talk about a crazy busy sports honestly sports week that we've had here uh, but lots of going on i said before happy spring we are officially in spring i'm not sure what that means still in a COVID 19 world but i just literally as i'm starting to record this pod we hear birds chirping in the background and and Nothing could make you feel better. We got beautiful sunny skies, depending on where you are in the country. But for the most part, beautiful sunny skies, warm weather coming. Uh, your boy is trying to get his ass back in shape, out working out, trying my best. Not sure how well it's going, but hey, that's what we're here for, right? We're here for that summer, uh, that summertime, and it's it's getting closer. You know, we're going through spring training and baseball and. But this this past weekend, uh, I think March Madness is always a sign that spring is here. You know, spring's right around the corner, but now it is here. The winter solstice has ended, and we are in springtime. And that means baseball, it means golf, it means the Masters, it means the NCAA Final Four, and uh, a whole lot of fun outdoor activities, hopefully safely, as this vaccine, everything gets spread out. but look, we, you know, we got to talk about a lot of things that's happened this past weekend, uh, and, and we're going to go through it all. We're doing a big sports gumbo episode here, all right? I'm going to hit a few different topics. We're going to go into, obviously, the, the tournament recap, uh, some of the shocking videos, but also not that shocking videos from the, you know, the disparity between women's and the men's basketball tournaments, and just kind of how messed up that whole dynamic is uh, and yet another example of how the NCAA just fumbles all over themselves. You know, it's it's unfortunate that's the world we live in, but, you know, it is what it is. And we'll get into some of that. Uh, Mel Kuyper has a new mock draft out, so we're going to dive into that. There's a, some interesting things he brought in there. Uh, and look, Kuyper's been doing this a really long time, and he's got some, you know, plenty of misses. But you have to understand that he is an encyclopedia when it comes to to the NFL draft and literally nobody on earth knows it better than he does. So uh, very excited to do some of that. And we're going to wrap up with a little bit of just NBA, you know, state of the union kind of stuff, because there's been some injuries, uh, most notably to LeBron and what that is going to do to our current standings, uh, the MVP race, LaMelo ball also injured. So we're going to get into a whole bunch of stuff uh, and I'm really excited. So, here we go. Yet another edition of Sports Gumbo. It's kind of a party when I get there. It's kind of a festivity. It's uh, I'm going to be in about uh, 18 to 22 homes next next week. So that means about 18 to 22 gumbos. So uh, <laughs> this is going to be great. All right. So like I said there in our kind of intro, the, the first thing I want to talk about today is the crazy video that went viral on Friday morning. Of Oregon women's basketball player Sedona Price, and she showed the not just the the picture that had gone viral of what the women's workout room looked like for their setup in San Antonio for the women's bubble in the NCAA tournament, but then she showed just how ridiculous the argument was made by the NCAA as to why. So initially, what what came out was a photograph uh, and a short video of the setup that the women's basketball team 
or that the women's basketball teams had for their NCAA tournament, which was a set of very small and light lifting bells, like dumbbells, and about 15 yoga mats. There was no legitimate equipment, no bands, like none of the stuff that you would think just in your average gym would have. And, and look, I think we all understand that it's unique circumstances this year. Teams are staying in this bubble. They're not allowed to go out. They only have, they're turning ballrooms into workout gyms. And, and that can be really hard to navigate. And on its surface level, when that first picture came out, I was appalled because I'm like, really? Like, there's no way you can find better equipment. But then the NCAA came out and said, well, it's from a lack of space. So Sedona Price takes to TikTok, makes a video, goes crazy viral. Like within, I don't know, maybe six hours, it had 4 million views already. And that was just on Twitter. So I don't know how many total impressions across social media platforms that it had. But she shows like, okay, here are our workout equipment. Or here's our workout equipment. You have these tiny little dumbbells that look like they were from a 1980s workout video with, you know, with men and women in leg warmers and, and neon blue and pink tights right next to these 15 or so yoga mats as if that's, you know, the only workout that division one female athletes, you know, would do is yoga and light lifting. And then she says, well, the NCAA told us that it was because we didn't have enough space. So let me show y'all a little something here. And she turns the camera around and it shows a massive banquet hall. And when I say massive, I mean, this thing could have held an additional like three basketball courts, like full basketball courts in this hotel. So space was never the issue here ever, right? It's the fact that the NCAA, you know, it's, it's not that they couldn't do this. It's that they didn't want to, they didn't think they needed to. And it, it goes back to this mindset as to how messed up the leadership is within the NCAA, how they completely value men's and women's sports in other worlds comparatively. And it's not just the D1 level. Look at the Division II level. If you look at where the men's Division II basketball championship is being held, it is a full-sized arena. This is Division Two, all right? So the argument of, oh, well, the D1 tournament makes all the money, so they get all the nice shit. That's that's bullshit. All right, we're talking Division Two here. They had a full stadium, like NBA-sized arena to play in. Do you know what the Division Two Women's Tournament Championship is being held? In a glorified high school gym. Like, seriously, like, I think even calling it a high school gym might be insulting. I've seen nicer high school arenas than where this D2 Women's National Championship game is going to be played. There is such flat-out disrespect for women's athletic within the NCAA. And it goes back to the leadership, right? It's almost as if they think these women can't or don't work out, right? It's a bunch of older white men who run the NCAA. It has been since its inception, led by Mark Emmerich. There was a video of a basketball player for a women's team, I don't remember which one it was, who was deadlifting 315 pounds. I'm telling you right now, I'm 25 years old. I'm a guy. I couldn't even touch 315 on a deadlift. Now, granted, I don't work out all that much, but that's not the point. The point is that these women deserve equal equipment at the very least, especially if you're forcing them into a bubble for potentially weeks on end. They're amateurs. 
you should be providing them at the bare minimum with high quality equipment. It was such a slap in the face to these people. Not only that, these women, just like the men, have been stuck inside of a their, their dorm rooms for the majority of this year. They all had to get to campus in, in July and August, just like the men's team did. They all had to quarantine themselves all year. They all had to make sacrifices not seeing their families all year so that it didn't impact their team. And then you get to the end of the road, which is supposed to be this incredible, wonderful experience for them. It's already not going to be that because of COVID. And you slap that middle finger to their face? I mean, come on. Like, the NCAA needs leadership overhaul so, so bad. But it's never going to happen because who does Mark Emmert answer to? All right, this isn't Roger Goodell who has to answer to 32 billionaires. All right, this isn't even Kevin Warren and any other Power Five commissioner who has to report to school presidents, 10 to 12. Mark Emmert overlooks over 1,200 schools in the NCAA. Who is he answering to? The answer is nobody. Go back and learn about how the NCAA developed their power in the first place. It was a scam. It had to do with the Notre Dame TV contracts. They didn't want to sign a bulk TV contract. And the NCAA punished them, tried to suspend them from play within the NCAA for a year because of it. And until that point, the NCAA had never suspended or penalized a school. There was nothing in the bylaws that said that they could or that they couldn't. And so they just decided, well, it doesn't say we can't penalize a team for this. So you know what? We're going to lay down sanctions. And this is in the 1940s, 1950s. This is a long time ago that this precedent was set. Because in the original rules, the NCAA, they were more or less just organizing this. They weren't an authoritarian figure. And there is no cap to it. It just continues to get out of hand. The NCAA, hand over foot, does nothing but screw themselves over, make themselves look dumb. But guess what? There is no accountability. And until Mark Emmert decides, you know what, I don't want to leave and we need to make changes, they're not going to make changes. It took literal federal and state legislation brought to Congress trying to pass the name, image, and likeness laws to even get the NCAA to think about this shit. Because at the end of the day, they really don't care as much as we all hope that they do. Muffet McGraw, who is the Notre Dame women's basketball coach, who is a rock star in the industry, she put out an absolutely brilliant statement. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But the one part that I found particularly eye-opening, right, and this goes to our all, all of our own uh, inefficiencies, all of our own problems, that, that we are even blind to it sometimes. The fact that everything is labeled the women's tournament versus the men's tournament is just the NCAA basketball tournament. No, it should be the NCAA men's basketball championship, but that's not how they brand it because in their eyes, they are not equal. The NCAA, I will say it again, desperately needs new leadership. And the problem is they don't want to. They don't want new leadership. They want to keep it as it is. And until enough noise gets made, whether it be by these players 
the not NCAA property hashtag that went viral throughout this whole first four days of the tournament. Those are the things. Sedona Price putting these videos out. Those are the people. These are the initiatives that need to happen to get the NCAA to get off of their damn ass and make something happen. Because at this point, it is absolute, utter horseshit. And Mark Emmert needs to be removed from his position. And I don't know when or how, but credit to the players. Credit to Sedona Price. Credit to Muffet McGraw. These people putting their names and reputations on the line. Because you're telling me if you think they didn't get hate for this and they didn't get shit for this, you are wrong. The NCAA needs to make changes and they need to make it happen fast. Me tug dog, yeah. Okay. Uh, just have the defense run sprints. I get right there, come on. All right. Gonna transition a little bit there. I got heated. I have plenty of personal issues with the NCAA, but one of the positive things about the NCAA and the most important thing that we can never forget is the actual players and athletes themselves. And we got to see the best of that, the best that college basketball and college sports have to offer this past weekend. And it was a bit of a unique schedule. All right. We're used to the Thursday through Sunday schedule. We started on Friday. I actually kind of loved having games on Monday, like waking up on that Monday after the first four days of the NCAA, NCAA tournament, men's tournament, is brutal. It, it always is. But this year, we didn't have to deal with that. We were fortunate. We got to wake up and say, wait, noon today, we're getting basketball all day again? Sign me the hell up. It, honestly, it made the Monday after the tournament weekend feel so much better. Because you knew you got to come home from work. I was lucky. I was, I mean, I was up early, but I was done work. I did the morning show. I was done by about 1030, came home, took some notes, prepared for this pod a little bit. And then all of a sudden, boom, I had 12 more hours of college basketball laid out in front of me. And it was glorious as it always is. But we got to talk about the first two rounds altogether because there was a ton of stuff that went down. Number one, 20 upsets. 20 upsets in the first two rounds. That is the record. We have never seen this many upsets in the NCAA tournament through the first two rounds. Now, I don't know which one was my favorite, to be honest. I tried to pick one. You can go to the Oral Roberts one, whether it's just the jokes or the fact that they beat Ohio State. Both were excellent. Um, but a 15 seed beating a two is, is up there with it's for a long time. It was the best thing we'd seen because no one ever thought we were going to see a 16 beat a one until UVA lost the UMBC a couple of years ago, but a 15 seed, not only beating Ohio state, but then beating Florida. And in both games, they kind of looked like the better team, which is insane to think about all Roberts. Like Arkansas knew ironically enough that they were pretty good. They scheduled them earlier in the season. It was brilliant scheduling practice by Eric Musselman who basically said, hey, you know what? We might have to play one of these really good smaller schools who win their bracket. And they scheduled uh, Oral Roberts, I believe Ohio, and there was one other, uh, North Texas, all three of them, who all were in the tournament. Uh, it was unbelievable. And Oral Roberts, shout out to you guys. They have to take on Arkansas in a rematch here in the Sweet 16 uh, but I, you can go through all of it, man. I mean, 
top to bottom, my UC Santa Barbara, they did not pull it out. It was devastating to see. Uh, Rutgers, I love that Rutgers team, man. And I said this with Scott last week. Like, if, And it sucks that they blew the lead late against Houston because it would have been an unbelievable run to see them there. Uh, but for Rutgers as a, as a program, as a school in the Big Ten, especially with the collapse of the Big Ten in this tournament, and we'll get there in a second, but for them to have won that opening round game against the mediocre Clemson team, who I, Scott and I both felt was overrated, and then come that close to beating Houston, I mean, that has to be the crowning achievement for Rutgers in their time in the Big Ten. I, I can't think of anything that would top that. I mean, this year, this year with football, I mean, Greg Shiana did a pretty good job, and who knows, maybe they they get hot and become a frisky team there in the Big Ten. But they're also playing in a really, really good football conference, so it's hard to say that that's you know all that likely. Uh, but you can keep going down. I mean, UCLA making a run. Everything the Pac-12 has done is amazing. Maryland is a 10 seed. The amount of double-digit seeded teams that won was crazy. It was unbelievable. Uh, Ohio beating UVA. What a three-year stretch for UVA. You get upseeded 16 to one. The next year you come back and win a champion. You're technically the longest termed reigning champion we had for a long, at least for, for a long time, probably since the Florida back-to-back years back in 06 and 07. And then you lose to Ohio and Ohio wasn't playing good basketball. We saw them get smoked by Creighton yesterday. So it's not like Ohio is this world beater. Yes. They have Jason Preston, who's going to be an NBA player and has an amazing story. But, yeah, I don't know. The, the one upset that everybody thought was going to happen, and I'm so glad that I faded this, was Villanova beating Winthrop. Because, yes, I'm a Villanova fan, but everybody was on Winthrop. Everybody was. And, again, it's what I've said in the past. When the public goes all in on something, 80% of people are picking Winthrop fade the public because they still have a couple of pros in that Villanova team. They still have Jay Wright, right? So you're still hitting these pillars. If they had Colin Gillespie still, I'd say this Villanova team would be in the running to try to take on Baylor because you need smart and talented guards to beat that Baylor team. Villanova would have had that with Gillespie. They're probably going to lose in the Sweet 16, but still another amazing run for Jay Wright. And he's my favorite coach in college basketball. There's a great story I have with Jay Wright that maybe we'll share in another podcast, but uh, love that guy. Love the first couple weeks and all the upsets. Um, want to talk now, before we get into the negative with the Big 12 and the Big 10, I want to go positive here. We're a positive podcast for the most part. And so I want to I want to stick to the positivity. The Pac-12. Go, go Pac-12, baby. What are we talking? The Conference of Champions, Bill Walton. I can't imagine what kind of drugs Bill Walton was doing. On, on Friday and Saturday and Sunday night. Like, he was in absolute heaven. I wish he was on the call for one of these games. I wish CBS had been like, you know what, ESPN, can we do a little, just a little home? You get Nance for part of the, the Masters. Just give us Bo Walton here for a little bit because it is, I would have killed to see his reaction to everything. But it starts, you know, UCLA wins the playing game. They beat Michigan State. That in, it, in and of itself, right, the, the old saying, January, February, Izzo, which – I still don't really get Izzo's only won one championship and it was over 20 years ago, but Tom Izzo is still a really, really good coach and usually gets his team ready for March every single year. So UCLA knocks out Michigan state, knocks out Sparta. Then they take on a really good BYU team, a team that damn near knocked out Gonzaga 
in their conference championship game and beat them by 11. Right, right now the Pac-12. Just so I can say this, they're eight and zero, straight up. Right, they they played eight games so far in the first two two rounds. They've won all eight, and they've covered the spread in all eight. None more impressive than, well, I guess they, not anymore. Sorry, Colorado lost, uh, so they're not eight and zero. Sorry, they're eight and one, but or nine and one, but USC. USC came out swinging last night against Kansas. And I had said this before with Scotty and I last week. USC is a really good team with really, really good pros. And what they did, beating Kansas by 34, it's the second worst loss that Kansas has ever had. This is Kansas. This is one of the most historic programs in all of college basketball with pros themselves with a great coach in Bill Self. And they got smoked by USC. All right. Let's look at Oregon. Unfortunately for Oregon, they didn't get a chance to play their opening game because of VCU tested positive for COVID and they had to forfeit the game. That sucked. That was something that I think we all thought might happen. But thankfully, it was only one team. And it sucks for VCU. Uh, I know on part of my take, they had mentioned, you know, throwing them in in the one shining moment, which I think would be a great idea. But it really did suck for VCU. I, I felt very bad for them. That being said, after seeing what Oregon did to Iowa, I'm not so sure VCU really would have had much of a chance. I mean, they just blew the doors off of Iowa and a really good Iowa team. I mean, they put up 56 in the first half. They finished with 95. They won 95 to 80 against one of the best offensive teams in the country who has the player of the year in Luca Garza, who, look, Luca Garza's probably not going to be a great pro, but he's a hell of a college basketball player. I mean, like, ridiculously good college basketball player. Uh, the Pac-12, top to bottom, Oregon State. I loved Oregon State. I said that on the pod last week. I had Oregon State beating Tennessee. I did not have Oregon State beating Oklahoma State. That was impressive because, yes, Luca Garza is going to win the award, the Wooden Award for the best player in college basketball. But Kate Cunningham is the best basketball player in the country, right? He's the one who can do the most things. And, again, Oregon State just shooting lights out from three. And their, their matchup here against Loyola Chicago, which, again, we're going to get into that a little bit later, I'm really excited for that Sweet 16 game. Like, as much as any of them, which is saying a lot considering everything going on here. So – you know, that's all we really have on, on, on the Pac-12. It's just they're, they're playing really, really well. And until Florida State beat Colorado yesterday, they hadn't lost a game. And I liked Colorado, but I think we, we were seeing now that Florida State is a legit Final Four potential team. And their matchup now against Michigan is going to be electric. And I think, I think that's when we might see Michigan fall, but I don't know because – and this is where we're going to transition now. We said our positive things. We gassed up the Pac-12, gassed up some Bill Walton. We love all that. But now we got to start kind of dumping on some teams here because the Big Ten and the Big 12, bar none, were the two best conferences in college basketball this year. Like not even remotely close. They were the two best conferences in college basketball. The Big Ten had nine teams in the tournament. The Big 12 had seven. Combined, there's two teams left, and it's Michigan and Baylor, which are two of the top four teams in the country. 
All right, we saw Illinois lose to Loyola Chicago. I don't know how the hell – I mean, look, I do know how the hell it happened. Loyola Chicago is a really, really good team. And, frankly, we're really underseeded being an eight seed in Illinois. Kind of got screwed there. But Ohio State, like, what are you doing? How, how do you play down to Oral Roberts? And, look, it's basketball. So, yeah, anybody can get hot. Anyone can start draining threes. And Oral Roberts definitely did some of that. But they looked like the better team throughout that entire game. They they really did. And I said this to Scotty. I thought Ohio State was kind of a week two seed. I thought they were weaker than Houston. I thought there was no chance they would lose in the first round. I thought maybe to Florida. And definitely I didn't think they'd get past Arkansas or Texas Tech, depending on how that side of the bracket ended up playing out. But like, what is happening in the Big Ten? How does this happen? They all of a sudden went from being a team – that played or, or being a conference that had all of these great scores, right? We saw Iowa go down against Oregon state against Oregon, right? In the second round. How does this happen? Maryland Rutgers. I'm not going to fault them. They were both 10 seeds, you know, Maryland loses to Alabama. That's there's no shame in that. Rutgers loses to Houston. I mean, frankly, Rutgers should have won the game. So I, I empathize with Rutgers fans out there because that's got to suck. You know, you have this team. Michigan State losing to UCLA. I still don't know how UCLA has turned this on. It still boggles my mind. I said it, and I will eat my words here. I called them soft. I thought they were a soft team. And to that matter, so did Tom Izzo. I don't have the clip here, but Tom Izzo literally called them soft in a press conference before the first four games. And so now we're looking at the Big Ten. We say, all right, well, their only hope left is Michigan. How Kofi Coburn and Ayo Desumu both dropped the ball as poorly as they did. I don't know if the moment was too big for them. I don't know if it's because it was the first game on Sunday. But that was a rough loss, man. That was a really, really rough loss. And for this incredible conference where everyone's talking about the, uh, the Big Ten and how great they are, the Big Ten has not won a national championship since 2000. Michigan State. It's been 20 years. And I'm not saying the Big Ten is a bad basketball conference. But at some point, you got to win one. You can have one team take it there. Wisconsin, they looked amazing against UNC. And if they had made a deeper run into the Big Ten tournament or had played a little better at certain points throughout the year and, and were able to get a six seed, right? If they were a six seed playing Utah State and then they get play Arkansas just like Texas Tech did, then maybe Wisconsin is still around, but they just got thrown into a buzzsaw against Baylor, and that game was a lot closer than the final score tells you. Baylor ended up winning by 13. That game was pretty close into the last 10 minutes, and I give Wisconsin a lot of credit for fighting and clawing. They dropped 85 on UNC. UNC, one of the most hot and cold teams in the entire country. But at what point are we going to be like, all right, like Big Ten, like, like how many championships does the Big East have? At least four in that stretch. Two for Villanova, two for UConn. Syracuse has one in there when they were still part of the Big Ten, or the Big East. So what are we talking about here? Is Big Ten is, oh, this is a power basketball conference. I, I'm not trying to say that they can't be, but, like, come on. Like, we, you have to do something. You have to be better than that if you're the Big Ten. Now, in the Big 12, they still have arguably the favorite I don't know. Gonzaga's looked pretty good, but Baylor has looked really good. 
and they are going to be a nightmare for teams to handle. And I pray that we get the Gonzaga Baylor matchup. Screw bra- you know brackets be damned. Actually, I do have Baylor Gonzaga in my championship, but I would love to see a Baylor Gonzaga national championship. And I think what we I think everybody would because they are so much better than every other team in college basketball. Now, credit to Mich- Michigan. Michigan held on to beat LSU. They were damn near close to losing that game. But right now, the Big 12, which had all these great schools, Texas Tech, right? Oklahoma, I mean, look, Oklahoma was going to beat Gonzaga, but Oklahoma fell off. Texas, Texas, how do you lose to Abilene Christian? That was one of the ugliest basketball games I have ever seen in my entire life. No exaggeration, no bullshit. Oklahoma State, you have Cade Cunningham. You have at least one other NBA player on your team. Cade Cunningham was way too passive down the stretch. And a part of his game is helping other guys play. But look, they lost that game by 10. They needed a burst, and he didn't step up to to bring them there. And I I don't know what – look, I'm not a coach, right? So I don't know exactly what you draw up to get them there. But come on. And the one team in the Big 12 I empathize with is West Virginia. Because the 2-3 zone that Syracuse runs needs to be fucking eliminated from college basketball. It is the worst. It is so – Bad. I can't stand the stupid Syracuse zone. It's horrible to watch. No one knows how to figure it out. And this whole season, Syracuse was mediocre running that same defense, but they only ran against ACC teams that have played them for years and coaches who have figured out how to beat Jim Bayheim's to stupid 2 3 zone. But the second you get into the tournament, and now all of a sudden you're playing teams that may have never seen a zone all year or, or, or kids who haven't played against the zone since they were in high school. It throws guys off. It, it does. And we saw it. West Virginia got really hot in the second half once they cracked the code. But at that point, they were fighting a losing battle. And look, no disrespect to Syracuse. Buddy Bayheim, they were making it rain from three. Okay. And they were, they were shooting lights out. All credit where credit is due. I'll give that up. But West Virginia, man, that it was just that was brutal because they took the lead at one point. They took the lead. I think it was like 66 to 64. But Syracuse just get hot. And that might be so far my favorite game of the tournament. It was just guys. It was a, literally like Buddy Bayheim and the other deep shooter for Syracuse versus uh, the, the white kid from West Virginia who was just draining threes left and right. Like it was exciting, exhilarating, and it sucked down the end. Even the last few minutes, like, the way West Virginia was playing the full court press in the last minute of the game, I thought was just electric television and, and fantastic basketball. But here we are, right? We have one Big 12 team left, one Big 10 team left. So I don't know what this means in a much bigger picture type of situation here with the NCAA tournament. I genuinely don't. But, man, it is it is weird to see that after what an incredible year the Big 12 had an incredible year. The Big 10 had getting nine teams, nine, nine times. Sorry, just had to do a little Ferris Bueller reference there, but I digress. Nine teams in the big uh, in the NCAA tournament, seven teams from the Big 12, and only two are left. That's that's March, right? Rothstein would say it. That's March. It's chaos. It's it's what. It's what this is. And yet here we are. We have see two SEC teams in there. We see two ACC teams in there. We have three 
Pac-12 teams in there. Two Big East teams. Uh, it's it's remarkable. Um, the team of the tournament, Loyola Chicago. I have a theory about them. Loyola Chicago could be if they if they wanted to, and if everything worked out. And this is a huge huge what if. So don't say that you know. Don't take this aggregators and say that. Oh, I'm assuming no. Loyola Chicago could be the next Gonzaga. They have the framework for it, all right? Everyone's going to remember Sister Jean. Everybody will. She, Long after she passes, we will remember Sister Jean and, and what she meant to the NCAA tournament. When the Ramblers went to the Final Four in 2018, that was one of the most historic Final Four runs we'd ever seen. Their coach, Porter Moser, has done an exceptional job there but he would have to stay. Mark Few has been at Gonzaga for 32 years. 32 years. That is really rare to do in college basketball. Now, bright side, if you're a fan of Loyola Chicago, is that Peter Moser, or Porter Moser, absolutely had job offers to leave Loyola Chicago after their last run. So, a little bit of positivity. He would have to stay for a long time. He would have to commit to being the long-term coach there. But you got to remember, Chicago is a hotbed of talent for the sport of basketball. Like, a absolute hotbed. And for years, because Illinois never got their shit together until just recently, like literally this year. And yet we saw Chicago, Loyola Chicago, beat them one-on-one. They've been getting pillaged. All their top-level level talent has been pillaged every single year. In recruiting since Illinois was last any good, which honestly was again like 20 plus years ago, or at least about 20 years ago, early 2000s. If Porter Moser decided, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to give 15 to 20 years of my life to stay here, he's only 52, so he's a pretty young guy. Invest in that market, invest in the hotbed of talent and recruiting talent that is in your own backyard. Right, they they say it all the time in football recruiting, right? And for LSU, it's put up the wall between Alabama. Don't let Alabama take Louisiana guys. Don't let Clemson take Louisiana guys. We are LSU. We're the only Power Five school in the state. We're putting up a wall, and we are not letting our guys, our top level recruits, leave. If Loyola Chicago has that mentality, while still not just going after the top recruits, but going after the right recruits, similarly to what. Mark Few and Jay Wright have done both at smaller private Catholic schools. I absolutely think that they could be a, a contender year in and year out. Maybe not for a national championship. Like they're still in a pretty weak conference. They don't have the luxury of Villanova playing in a major conference. But is the West Coast Conference a juggernaut? No, it's a pretty good conference. But Gonzaga has helped kind of rise the, the tide. You know, rising tide lifts all boats. You have a little bit that there with the West Coast Conference. Not a lot. Still pretty weak conference, but Gonzaga has found a methodology there, and, and it started with that. Butler was very similar a couple of years ago, but Brad Stevens, you know, remember, they went to back-to-back national championships. It's fucking crazy <laughs> at Butler, and now Butler is a part of the Big East and a, a state, a, a household name in college basketball. If Brad Stevens had choos- chosen to stay there instead of going to Boston, who knows what the ceiling would have been for Butler? 
they probably would still be going to the NCAA championships like every single year. Not every single year, but you know what I mean. They'd still be competitive, especially when they move to the Big East. And conference realignment is always going to be in, you know, in the conversation every couple of years, especially in basketball, where there are so many different conferences. And if something opens up and Loyola Chicago could could maybe move, I don't know. I just think this is a really would be an amazing thing, right? You have a very unique foundation already if you are Porter Moser at Loyola Chicago. The foundation you've built, potent, you know, he's already been to one final four. If they beat Oregon State this upcoming weekend, they could go to the Elite Eight. And then, for all we know, Syracuse could beat Houston. I mean, Houston, I think, is a beatable. I mean, Rutgers almost just beat Houston. So there is a realistic path that Loyola Chicago could get back to the Final Four. And if he has two Final Fours on his resume, what kid isn't going to want to play there? He can pick his specific style of player that he wants, and he can recruit in his own backyard in Chicago. I think it would be a slam dunk if he's willing to stay there and build something long-term. But not every coach is willing to do that. And I guarantee you, whether it's Indiana, who's still looking for a head coach, Minnesota just filled their job. But if Indiana comes calling and opens up a bag and say, hey, Porter Moser, here's $3 million a year to come coach here. That might be tough to say no to. But given the success that he's had at Loyola Chicago, I wouldn't be surprised. All right. So that's all I have. Uh, I'm going to make Scotty and Vito pick the Sweet 16 for us. Uh, We're going to be recording here later on the week when we do our free agency recap. We're going to wrap that pod up by going through our Sweet 16. We're going to fill out the uh, second chance bracket that ESPN has, and we're going to see how accurate we can be here moving forward. So with that, let's move on to the next step of Sports Gumbo. Wow. Damn. Mock draft season. Still rolling. And if you're an NFL draft nut like me and like the boys are, uh, we're going to be talking about pretty much every mock draft that comes out here, whether it's Kuiper, whether it's the guys at The Athletic, whether it's McShay. Uh, this is this is mock draft season. You know, as much as it's the tournament season and everything else, like we're getting ready. We are close to about a month away, actually a little bit less than a month from the NFL draft. And I'm ecstatic. And based off of what I'm seeing and some of the things that we're hearing, not just from Kuiper, but from some of the most plugged in people in the industry, I have a feeling this draft is going to be nuts, particularly right at the top, right? So Mel Kuyper's mock draft 3.0 starts off with four straight quarterbacks, Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, Trey Lance. Now he does have Trevor Lawrence, Jaguars, Zach Wilson to the Jets, and he has Carolina trading up from eight to three to take Justin Fields. Now, I think that would be a great fit, honestly. And, you know, Matt Rule was coaching in college at the same time that Justin Fields is there. So he has a good idea of of what he can do, as I think many of us do. I mean, I think most people like Justin Fields, but the concerns on him are real. They they just are. He's an incredible athlete, but there's a lot of things in in that system in in Ohio State that were opened up for him. And you got to remember the talent that was around him, right? Like, If we're going to hold the, well, Mac Jones played with an incredible set of wide receivers and an incredible offensive line and had an amazing defense and had Ryan Day calling plays for him, or sorry, and had Steve Sarkeesian calling plays for him, 
then why the hell can we not say the same thing about Justin Fields? Because everything I just said, except it's Ryan Day instead of Steve Sarkeesian, who, frankly, Ryan Day's offense is better than Steve Sarkeesian's. I think Ryan Day is a better play caller, though Steve Sarkeesian is a great play caller. I'm picking nits here. Justin Fields absolutely deserves that same level of criticism. And, and it's not even fair to say criticism as much as it's just like a, hey, let's think about this for a second, right? It's a, it's not a red flag. It's like a yellow flag. It, it makes you think like, all right, well, Chris Alave is going to be a first-round draft pick next year. I'm, he probably would have been a first-round draft pick this year if he chose to, to not go back to – Ohio State and go to the NFL. He had a great offensive line. He had, I mean, Trey Sermon. Have you seen that dude run the football? Holy shit. I mean, they have some horses behind him. In addition to having an awesome play caller and an awesome offense. But historically, Ohio State quarterbacks are not the best pro prospects. And I pushed back on this when Vito had brought it up before only because I do think Justin Fields is different. I don't know how much different, but I think he's different. And he's my guy who I just, I have no idea what's going to happen with him. I have more confidence in Trey Lance being a stud. And I know that's not a popular opinion because Trey Lance has played the least amount of football out of these people. Or so you would think. Justin Fields only has about six or seven more games played in his college career. And yes, he played against much stiffer competition. I get that but he was also asked to do a lot less. Trey Lance took on the burden of an offensive of an NFL quarterback. He processed the whole field, not just one, two, read, get the ball out of your hands. And I know Vito and I a while back had kind of butted heads on this. And and he was saying like, you know, when it comes to deep throws, Justin Fields was at the tops in the country at doing that. And that's true. But Vito was using that argument to say, you know, he was throwing guys open and he he wasn't doing that. Throwing a guy open is not necessarily throwing the ball deep and letting the guy go chase it. That is part of it. But it's throwing into windows that, you know, maybe you, your gut's telling you to throw two yards to the left. And that's where Justin Fields throws. But in reality, you need to throw it on the other side of the backer. You know, if you're looking at a linebacker staring you in the middle, he'd be more inclined to throw to the left of that quarterback when he really should have been throwing to the right side of it. And there's small, minute things. But that's the kind of stuff that Trey Lance excelled at, reading defenses exceptionally quickly. And I would I would encourage anybody to go look at some of Dan Orlovsky's quarterback breakdowns for Trey Lance. And so this is not a, I don't think Justin Fields can be good. I think all these guys can be good. But it's important to remember, historically, 50% at minimum of every first-round quarterback drafted will be a bust. So if we're talking about five quarterbacks here. And in fact, I was talking to my buddy Pearson about this just this morning. When you look at the quarterbacks from the 2017 draft class, it's the Baker Mayfield class, right? 2017-2018. You had Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh uh, Allen, Josh Rosen, and Lamar. They are kind of a perfect spectrum of what you can get from your NFL, the highest you know, upside to the lowest downside of first round quarterbacks, right? Obviously Josh Rosen is at the bottom of that. Then you have Sam Darnold, who I like Sam Darnold, but it's also so situational dependent and he could go to another school, another place here and ball out for the next couple of years. And I wouldn't be surprised at all because the talent's there. But to this point, he would be number four on that list. Then you have Baker, who we've seen a lot of highs from Baker's, a decent amount of lows. He's kind of smack dab in the middle. Lamar, I would have next, who 
Lamar, yeah, he's won an MVP. He's the most dynamic out of all these guys. But I don't think he's the best quarterback yet. I think he can be still. But he also hasn't had all the weapons around him. And then you go to Josh Allen, who Josh Allen also played in the best situation for him with an organization that we didn't know it at the time, but really knew what they were doing. You got to give credit to Brandon Bean, uh, to yeah, Brandon Bean up there, the GM, and Deshaun McDermott, who've done an incredible job of building this uh, this whole system and this whole overall franchise around Josh Allen. They've done him as as well as you can do anybody. Even signings like picking up Emmanuel Sanders. And look, we're going to go into all the free agency stuff later on this week. But it's important to remember here too. Look at the order of those guys. Like what were the teams at the bottom there? The quarterback guys who got drafted at the top there, the Cleveland Browns. They've done pretty well of late, but when he got when Baker got drafted there, it was a bit of a dumpster fire. They were just kind of starting to turn over a new leaf. The Jets, situational dependency has so much to do with how these guys perform. And so, yeah, right now, we all think Urban Meyer is going to be a a rousing success. But are we confident about that? Do do we know that Jacksonville is going to be all of a sudden a winning franchise when historically they really haven't been that? Now, I'll put it this way. They haven't been as dysfunctional as Cleveland was, and they haven't been as dysfunctional as the New York Jets are. And now the Jets are being run by Joe Douglas, right? Robert Salah. We think they're going to be good, a great head coach GM combo. So maybe Zach Wilson comes in and all of a sudden the culture's changed and we have a a new type of the New York Jets, similarly to what we saw with the Cleveland Browns. But realistically, it's too early to tell. So while we're sitting here debating and nitpicking, all these guys have the potential to be really good, including Mac Jones who's probably going to get drafted a little bit below the top four. But remember how important the situation is around it. Lamar getting drafted to a really good organization in Baltimore. Same thing with Josh Allen, who, again, we didn't know it at the time because Buffalo's history told us otherwise. But at that point, Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, they had something going there. We just didn't know that. So maybe that's the Jets this year. Maybe that's Jacksonville. All of that could be true. But all five of these guys who are going to get drafted in the first round in April have the potential to be really good quarterbacks. So just keep that in mind. I'd also add this in there. And I think it's very unusual to see quarterbacks go one, two, three, four. The teams that are up there, like as of right now, like I don't think Atlanta's drafting a quarterback. Atlanta just restructured Matt Ryan's deal. So they technically can't move on from him until 2022. So. Maybe they do draft Trey Lance, like Mel Kuyper is suggesting, suggesting here. I don't think we're going to see that, but it could. It could definitely happen. But they also had a pretty good roster. They are the team here at the bottom who I think have the highest bounce back, right? They were, man, they almost beat the Chiefs late in the season. Uh, I think they're, you know, every, every year you have teams that draft towards the top of the draft who had rough years who lost a couple of one possession games, had a couple of weird bounces who all of a sudden have big bounce back years. And I really like some of the moves. I mean, they're still, th- he, you know, Matt Ryan's still going to be throwing to Julio Jones and to Calvin Ridley. So he's still going to have a lot of guys. He's still going to have a lot of talent there. Uh, I think Atlanta is a prime team to try to trade back because they're tight on cap space. So if they can trade out of number four, pick up a second round draft pick, move back 10 spots, right? Whether it's a team like, San Francisco 
or even Carolina. Uh, I, I, I would not be surprised to see that. Miami, too. If Miami decided to trade out of number three, would that surprise any of us? No. I mean, literally, Mel Kuyper saying that that's going to happen. They have Tua. I would be surprised if they drafted a quarterback, but I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we end up seeing that. Philly. Philly's a team. The owner publicly, and there's been a lot of talk about this, so I'm going to take a moment just to talk about this for a second. At number six, there's probably going to be teams that are going to try to trade up and see if they can grab a fourth quarterback or even use Philly as a stepping stone to move up to maybe number two or number three. Jeffrey Lurie is the owner of the Eagles. When the owner of a team comes out and says, Jalen Hurts is our quarterback, Jalen Hurts is going to be your quarterback. And Howie Roseman kind of stirred up some stuff again by saying, oh, this is not what our quarterback room is going to look like. Like, yeah, no shit, dude. You have one quarterback in there. You're going to sign a backup. There's been talks about bringing Nick Foles in. Please, dear God, don't. Joe Flacco has been uh, met with the Eagles yesterday. Okay, he's a Philly guy. He's from the Delaware area, from the Philly area. Cool, bring him in. He's going to be a backup. I don't really give a shit. He's the backup. This year's about Jalen Hurts. And at the end of the day, Howie Roseman can have way, way, way too much power in the organization. I think most Eagles fans would agree. But Jeffrey Lurie is still the owner, right? How many times has Jerry Jones said, oh, we're going to do this? For better or for worse, whether that's good for the organization or not, the owner has final say. It will always be that way in sports. If you have an owner who puts his hands in the pot, he's going to. And he has more power and leverage because he owns the damn team than anybody else. So let's stop making a big deal about what Howard Roseman said, saying our quarterback room isn't done. We're not done going after quarterbacks. If they draft somebody in a later round, that would be really dumb too. But the fact that they are bringing in Joe Flacco, even for just a, a, an interview talk, however you want to describe it, that is good. That means that they're looking at potential veteran backups to sit behind Jalen Hurts. So I don't think Philadelphia is going to draft a quarterback. But what's interesting is that the team ahead of them, Cincinnati, obviously they're not drafting a quarterback. They got Joey Franchise up there. Who day? That's what they that's what they say up there in Cincinnati. I don't know why. Always made me curious, by the way. Is it you have who dat in New Orleans? Who day in Cincinnati? Like where did that come from? I need somebody. I need someone to let me know about this because I it blows my mind every time. I'm like, what the hell? Like, did you just steal that? Which one came first? What does it mean? All right, maybe I just need to go to Cincinnati and they'll tell me. Uh, but in this mock draft, uh, Mel Kiper has them not taking Penny Sewell, which I think everyone on the planet had mocked, but rather taking Kyle Pitts, the tight end out of Florida, which I kind of love. They did go out and sign Riley Reef, who is a Solid tackle from the Minnesota Vikings. But that would be a pretty big move. Like, imagine Joe Burrow with a stud tight end. Now, he made Thaddeus Moss, who was Randy Moss's kid, who was a tight end at LSU when they won the national championship together. But Kyle Pitts in that offense where, you know, you still have some decent wide receivers. They lost A.J. Green this year, but I think they're okay with that. They also lost John Ross, but I mean, that was kind of to be expected anyway. So Kyle Pitts would kind of make a lot of sense here. I still think you go after the generational left tackle. I still think you do. And I had some people tell me, oh, it's gener generational talent season. Penny Sewell is generational talent. Kyle Pitts ran a 4-4-6 at his 
pro day or I don't know if it was a pro day, but at a workout. It was and it was not hand clocked either. I mean, this was by laser like calc. So I I gotta say, man, Kyle Pitts is a terrifying person to have on a football field. But that would put the Philadelphia Eagles in a really interesting spot there at number six if this played out. Because if Penny Sewell is there, I know they really like Jordan Mailata. I really like Jordan Mailata. They used a first round draft pick on Andre Dillard just two years ago. So I think you'd like to see what you have out of him. And also, you you have Lane Johnson still on the right side, so you're not going to make Penny Sewell play right tackle. So what – I guess if it's there and he's the number one guy on your big board and you're just saying, look, we might have him for, for the next 15 years at that position, I still think you would. I would rather have Jamar Chase. I, I really think you would. And I still think Cincinnati's going to draft Penny Sewell. I think they're going to have him play left tackle, and I think they're going to have – uh, Riley Reef play right tackle. And there, boom, there are your tackles in Cincinnati. And you are now protecting Joe Burrow. like that. And ultimately, after what happened this past year with Joe Burrow running for his life, I just it doesn't make any sense for them to draft anybody other than. But it was a fun little wrinkle here in Mel Kuyper's draft. Uh, moving down the list, you know, he has then three wide receivers going in a row. Jamar Chase to the Eagles, Devontae Smith to the Lions, and then the Miami Dolphins drafting Jalen Waddle, they would have traded back with Carolina in this. That to me is kind of how I have these wide receivers ranked. So I'm kind of on par here with Mel. Another interesting trade here because he did have Penny Sewell uh, falling was Minnesota trading up with Denver to number nine to get Penny Sewell. I just don't think that happens. I don't think Penny Sewell is falling to nine. There's, I would be dumbfounded if that dude fell to nine because in many other years he would be considered a potential first round draft pick. Uh, but now as we continue to move down here, Quiddy Pay made a huge jump. A lot of guys have him end of the man end of the first round, but you know, I forget where we had him in our mock draft. It was somewhere in the the low twenties. I think he's really good um, as far as when it comes to being an athlete. Like he's an elite level athlete. He had 11 and a half sacks in only four seasons, right? And this isn't a guy who just started playing football. You know, he had four full seasons at Michigan, only had 11 and a half sacks. That is a concerning number. But when you have an elite level athlete, you know, NFL teams always think that they can turn whatever, uh, that they can turn whatever, you know, free agent, or, that they can turn whatever, insane athlete into a legit NFL player that and their system and their coaching abilities are that much more superior than whoever had them before. And he is raw. So I get it, but I don't know. That one's concerning to me. Here's the, the next one here. And, and we can move through. If Micah Parsons dropping a little bit, I don't think he'll fall as low as 14. I just think he's an exceptional player, but this is the one that a lot of people talked about, which is Mac Jones to the Patriots. Now, I wouldn't be shocked if this happened. I I would be a little surprised, to be totally honest. I think Mac Jones will go earlier than that just because I think the premium of a quarterback, and I think a lot of people like him. But I don't think New England's looking this way. I think you're more likely to see New England target Davis Mills, who is kind of a no, – not a lot of people know who he is, but Davis Mills was supposed to be a high-level recruit and play. He went to Stanford, didn't get a chance to play a whole lot, KJ Costello was there the year that he probably would have played and then Costello transferred to Mississippi state. But then this year with COVID Davis only had five games. I think 
that Stanford played. So it's a really small sample size, and he hasn't played a whole lot of college football. But some of the natural talent that this kid has is pretty impressive, like has a lot of scouts kind of buzzing. Uh, a lot of the things I'm hearing from guys who scout in the NFL uh, or scout in college, they're really impressed with this kid. And again, he's raw, but I could absolutely see, you know, Bill Belichick looking for the value play. The other one I, I'm looking at here would be Kellen Mond, who I'm not a huge Kellen Mond fan. There are guys like Chris Sims who are really, really high on him. But I think if you're New England, you bring back Cam Newton – you're not going to then draft the top 15 guy. You know you need to add more assets. And, yes, they went nuts in free agency, but they need to add more pieces around the team. They, they need to make sure that they can get as many talented players. And Bill's all about value. That's what Belichick has always been about. His free agency splurge this year would tell you otherwise, but the last 20 years of evidence kind of points to what Belichick does when he's running a football team. And I, I don't think they go quarterback in the first round, but I think Kellen Mond would actually be a really interesting fit. You get him to learn under Cam Newton, right? They're both really mobile quarterbacks. Obviously, Kellen Mond is not the physical freak that Cam Newton is. No other quarterback in NFL history has been or probably ever will be as much of a physical freak as Cam Newton. Uh, but I think Kellen Mond or Davis Mills would be really, really interesting picks there. Moving on in the last few last few names here as we wrap out this this first round, uh, Jameen Davis, inside linebacker, or not just inside, just linebacker from Kentucky. Uh, he has moved up. He wasn't even in Mel's last mock draft, and now he's all the way up at 17. Now, I have heard a lot of rumblings about this kid. Watch some of his film this morning. He's a big-time player. He really is. He's a, he's a gamer. Like He's a guy who flies all over the field. He's got really high motor. Really intelligent guy. He can play inside. He can play outside. He can drop into coverage. He can pass rush a little bit. He's kind of a Swiss Army knife at that linebacker position. And I really think he can, you know, be a top-level player. I don't like him more than Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah Uzukoromoa. Damn it. I'm still working on that name. Uh, but it's a it's a bold pick by Kuyper. And, and he has him going to the Raiders, which the Raiders have made bold picks and drafted guys that they love a lot earlier than they were expected to be drafted, right? Just like Cleveland Farrell a couple of years ago. Uh, after that, Gregory Rousseau still dropping 21. This guy is, if I'm taking a gamble on a raw defensive end, give me Gregory Rousseau. 15 and a half sacks in a college football season. When they were on a bad, he was on a bad Miami team that year. So it wasn't like they were playing teams that were throwing the ball 50 times a game to catch up to them. They were more running the ball to kill the clock. And yet he still had 15 and a half sacks. 6'7", 250 pounds. If I'm gambling on any of these first-round DNs who are raw, which they kind of all are, give me Gregory Russo. Um, One of my favorite names, Rousseau. Sorry about that. Uh, One of my favorite names in the draft this year. Tutu Atwell, wide receiver from Louisville. Uh, he's been compared to guys like Hollywood Brown, right? He's a little speedster. He can stretch the field. He's small, but he can do a lot of things in the jet sweep and the running game. He would be a perfect fit for New Orleans, which is where they have him going here. I think his ability to help stretch the field, to help Michael Thomas uh, and open things up. Plus, you have Jameis more than likely going to be your starting quarterback next year. Uh, and, and if you do play some Taysom Hill stuff there, Having a guy like that in the running game can be really advantageous for Taysom as well. So 
I, I love the idea of them adding just an absolute speedster on the outside. If for whatever reason, Kadarius Tony drops to them, he would be the guy I would suggest over Tutu Atwell. But if you want to see a guy who can just flat out fly, Atwell is the kind of dude and played at Louisville. So, you know, he's played against some pretty top cornerbacks, guys like Caleb Farley, uh, who, even though he didn't play this year, had they had played him in the past. So uh, I really like Tutu Atwell. I hope he uh, lands in New Orleans because I think that would be a really, really fun spot. And we're looking at New Orleans roster who, yeah, they had to let go of some guys. Trey Hedge, uh, yeah, Trey Hendrickson, Sheldon uh, Rankins, defensive tackle, and Emmanuel Sanders. I kind of would rather have the deep speedster guy in Tutu Atwell, though historically those guys who get drafted in the first rounds, the John Rosses, right? Even Henry Ruggs was kind of a disappointment last year. Those guys don't historically bode well. I mean, Hollywood Brown's been a bit of a disappointment considering what the uh, expectations were for him and how amazing he was in college. But I, I do think that this would be a good fit because they wouldn't be asking him to be a number one because you, you do have Michael Thomas there still. Uh, the last two guys here I want to talk about in the mock draft, and then we're going to move on to the NBA. Greg Newsom, the second cornerback from Northwestern. That sounds like a name you would hear from a guy who goes to Northwestern, right? Greg Newsom, the second. Uh, this guy is, I think, the most well-rounded cornerback in the draft this year. Now, this would be the fourth cube cornerback uh, more than likely drafted in the first round. There was an uh, they went public this week that Caleb Farley had to have some minor back surgery earlier, which is a little bit concerning, but at the same time, he didn't play this past year. So I, I would feel okay drafting him. It's not like this is a compounding injury that's happened uh, time after time from game action and game injuries and in practice. Like, right. For the most part, what he's been working on is not the crazy, you know, physical atmosphere that a college football practice or a college football game would have. Uh, that being said, JC Horn out of South Carolina still, he's got, he's the one with some nasty in him. And I really like that about him. Certain uh, is long. He obviously played for Nick Saban. He knows how to defend well. And, and a lot of Nick Saban defensive backs play, or, you know, end up doing really, really well in the NFL. He's long, but he's not super physical. And I think that concerns some guys. Greg Newsom is the guy who look, I mean, he, he ran a four, three, eight. So the guy can fly but he's even faster on the field. Like there are four, three guys in the 40 and then there are four, three guys on the field. And Greg Newsom is a little bit of both. And on top of that, he's got really great feet. He's got a natural feel to the position. He doesn't have the best ball skills, but he's a really good coverage cornerback. And I think green Bay still should maybe look for a weapon here at the back end of the first round, but they also, you know, they need another top level cornerback to go on the opposite side of Jair Alexander. So give me Greg Newsom number two at, at uh, Greg Newsom the second uh, going to Green Bay at 29. And the last thing I'm going to say here, Najee Harris to the Buffalo Bills again. There was a picture that came out of Najee Harris this week and his pro day is actually today, uh, Tuesday. This kid's thighs are ridiculous. Like Saquon has insane legs. This dude has the – his legs are proportionate to a turkey leg. Like, that is how enormously round they are. Like, I don't understand how he can walk without his legs, like, bumping into each other. They're so massive. And I, I just love the idea of 
him being in Buffalo. Um, I, you know, I, and it sucks because I really do like Zach Moss and Devin Singletary. And I think they're actually kind of set there. Like I think if both of them can stay healthy, that would be a pretty good one, two punch. Uh, maybe you can go after an, another offensive lineman, give yourself some depth here at number 30, or even trade back and get some extra picks in the back half. Pick up another cornerback. I don't know. There's a lot of things that they can do. They obviously don't need a wide receiver. They let John Brown go, but they signed Emmanuel Sanders. They don't need another quarterback, obviously. They got Mitch Trubisky to be their backup. You know, maybe a defensive tackle like uh, Christian Barmore from Alabama. I think he could be a nice fit there, but Najee Harris could be an elite level running back. And what do you get to get? What do you get the team that has everything? What do you get the girl that has everything? That's kind of where Buffalo is at right now, where they have done such a good job of constructing this roster that what else do they need? You know, so maybe you do go after a little bit of the cherry on top with a guy like Najee Harris, who can legitimately be a difference maker for you, especially come postseason time. And on top of it, you don't have to get rid of your other two running backs. You can still have a running back by committee, but it might just be 50% Najee Harris and then 25 and 25 or 40, 30, 30, right? You can divvy up the carries in different ways and Najee Harris can still be your lead back while also still getting value from your other guys that you've spent relatively high draft picks on in the last couple of years. So uh, that is our mock draft review there from, from a man, Mel Kuyper. Just some food for thought as as we, the further along we get down this road and the closer we get to the draft, the more crazy shit's going to happen. And I'm telling you, I really, really think this year is going to be unique. I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun to get a chance to watch. Last thing here on this sports gumbo, loaded sports gumbo. This is like a sports gumbo that you would feed for like an entire party. Like you would take like a shrimp boil pot and you'd make enough for literally everyone in the neighborhood to come by. So I'm sure you're sick of my voice. I'm already a little sick of my voice. So we're going to wrap up here with this NBA talk uh, because look, there's some things worth bringing up and that is most notably LeBron James. LeBron James had a nasty looking high ankle sprain over the weekend. And I don't know what to make now for the Lakers. I mean, without Anthony Davis, who I think is still probably cut another couple weeks from coming back. LeBron's going to be out at least at least a month. A high ankle sprain is a brutal injury to come back to come back from. And on top of it, we already saw what happened when John Morant, who you know was like 22 years old, had the same injury earlier this year. He was out for like six and a half weeks. And the Lakers are going to be trying to prime themselves for a championship run. Now, this does sound a little like LeBron, too good to be sh- true, comes back after six weeks. AD comes back. They're fully healthy. They make a run. And look, if the two of them are there before the playoffs start, I'm still probably going to lean with the Lakers. I'm, I'm just not going to, you know, I, I get what the Nets are doing. Obviously, I love the Sixers and, and, and I'm a Sixers fan. I still would take the Lakers to win the title. I, I just would. If you have LeBron, Anthony Davis, and they're both healthy, I just would. But I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to lament on what it's like to be a to go through and how long it's going to heal or anything. Like I'm not Stefan Bell. I can't tell you any of that shit. But what I am curious about and what I did kind of want to talk about on this pod is that it's incredible that LeBron is in year 16. And this is really the first like scary, like kind of massive injury he's had. There was one year in Miami that he missed some time. I think it was 2011 or 2010. 
And then obviously the year two years ago, or yes, two years ago, uh, when that team in LA was just terrible before they traded for Anthony Davis, where he had the quote unquote groin injury, uh, which he did. But look, that was a rest year. LeBron had was coming off of four straight trips to the finals with the Cavs. And he knew that he wasn't going to take that Lakers team very far. And eventually they go out and they get him Anthony Davis. And then boom, the next year they win a title. So LeBron knew what he was doing. And it was a chance for him and his whole body to rest after four years. But this injury is really interesting because LeBron's greatest strength, his greatest attribute out of all the things he can do on a basketball court, it's the old adage. The best ability is availability. You know, he has played so many regular season minutes. He is in the top four all time in regular season minutes. And by the time his career is over, he's going to finish number one. He's already number one in all-time playoff minutes. This is a guy who year in and year out really didn't miss a whole lot of games. He would sit some games and then, you know, come back the following year and be like, why didn't I get the MVP, right? Or not only that, I should rephrase this. He would sit out games because he wanted to win championships. And that's fair because what he was saying at the whole time was, hey, you know what? Winning championships is the most important thing to me. I get you, dude. Totally valid. I'm with you. But now this year, there's a whole lot of I've been disrespected and how, you know, I, I, I want to try to win MVP. That's why he was playing in every single game this year, which a lot of people thought, especially after the bubble, that he was just going to coast. But that's not what LeBron did. LeBron went like full throttle. And I give him credit for that. But you can't have it both ways. You can't, you know, sit out games for years and then be like, well, why didn't I get the MVP? Well, it's because you didn't play in all the regular season games. It's a regular season award. It's a very simple conversation. And you wanted to win championships. You you don't get both unless you play the whole season. And when LeBron was choosing to sit out games with Cleveland, people weren't going to give it to him. Plus, if you go through every single year, like there are plenty of years where it's like, yeah, dude, like James Harden, Kevin Durant, Giannis, like all those guys earned their MVPs. The only questionable year was the Derrick Rose, but he wasn't going to get it that year in 2011 because he was a villain. And so that's a valid argument. But outside of that, like there was never going to be a time for it. And I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but just primarily, I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate LeBron's availability. The fact that he has taken care of his body in such extreme ways, right? Because he does have insane genetics and that absolutely plays a part of it, right? That plays a part for all these pro athletes and particularly in the NBA, but he also invested in his body, right? Like Kareem got made fun of when he was doing yoga and martial arts in the seventies and the eighties. But that's why Kareem was able to play for 20 plus years. But the last part of this, honest to God, and this is not to take anything away from LeBron because LeBron took what Kareem did and what Carl Malone did and then getting into the weight room stuff and also some of this Tom Brady plyometrics and all that. Like that is all true, valid, absolutely real. He also got really lucky because that injury he had this weekend was not from a pulled hamstring. It it was a fluky, weird, he got rolled up on. And that wasn't, that's not his fault. You know, he did everything he can. But the fact that that hasn't happened for LeBron more than like twice in his entire 16-year career, that's insane. 18 years, I'm saying 16, it's 18 years. He's drafted in 2003. It's insane. How does someone get that lucky? And it's it's the perfect example of your best ability is availability. And he did everything that he could control making sure he was in prime shape, taking care of his body, investing financially in his body. 
being blessed with good genetics, but then also getting really lucky that something crazy, like someone rolling into the back of your ankle hadn't happened before then. And it, it's crazy. Now, the, the unfortunate side here is obviously, maybe it's unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, is that the MVP race is wide open now. It was Embiid, Embiid got hurt, and now it's not Embiid. Then everyone kind of shifted LeBron. LeBron was the odds-on favorite. We talked about this with Kevin Haswell last week. LeBron was the odds-on favorite. Well, now LeBron is out and probably will not be able to play enough games, particularly in a year where there are less games to play to begin with. He's probably not going to get a chance to win the MVP unless the crazy LeBron stands vote for him anyway. So then it comes down to, all right, well, who's next? Is it Jokic? Well, Jokic statistically would be the one that's deserving for it, no question. But I look at the, the thing I said to Kevin Haswell when we were talking about this last week, and I brought it up to him at the end of the conversation about the MVP. Dame Lillard. Dame Lillard will win the MVP this year. That is my prediction right now. I'm going to put in a future bet on it because the narrative is there. Disrespected superstar his whole career. And with C.J. McCollum back, he's putting up insane stats. So he's got the narrative part of it, which, I again, I hate that word, narrative. But he's got that checked off. He's got the statistics checked off. He's got arguably the most unblockable shot in the NBA right now. His jab step back three is ridiculous. He's got by far the best clutch time rating in all of the NBA, not even remotely close. And he is the heart and soul of that Portland team. And if the returning of CJ McCollum means that they can finish as, I don't know, say the, the four seed, the three seed, especially with the Lakers more than likely falling out of it. And if they finish ahead of Denver, I think you have to give it to Dane. Because I don't think Embiid will have played enough games by the time it comes back, even though I think Embiid has been the best player start to finish so far this year. But when it's all said and done, he's just not going to play enough games and the Sixers are going to do the smart thing and protect him for the playoff run. So I think it's got to be Dame. And I, I hope it is because I love Damian Lillard. I fucking love watching that guy play basketball. I really do. Uh, the last injury here on the NBA, and I got two quick things and we'll be out of here. LaMelo. LaMelo Ball more than likely out for the season. They said out indefinitely. Woj originally said out for the season. He was getting a second opinion on his broken wrist. I don't have much to add other than it's just a bummer. Uh, I was hesitant to like LaMelo when he first came in. I remembered him as a kid dropping 99 or whatever it was in a a high school game. I mean, he's obviously talented. um, And it probably was unfair of me because I just really disliked LaVar, if if we're being honest. LaVar was the one that I couldn't stand. But I really do like LaMelo, and I hope LaMelo gets an opportunity to, to, to come back healthy and, and stronger. He was the runaway Rookie of the Year candidate. I'm curious if he's still going to win the award. He'll definitely still be a finalist, if nothing else. But it's a shame that Charlotte team was really playing good football, uh, basketball, and they came in hot at, at the right time. So fingers crossed, prayers up for, for Melo. And that's right. I'm never going to call him Melo. There's one Melo. It's, Car- it's Carmelo Anthony. So can we stop calling LaMelo Ball Melo? Just call him LaMelo. I just – and the thing is, people are still going to call him LaMelo or still, are still not going to call him LaMelo. They're going to call him Melo, and it's going to piss me off probably for the next, like, 20 years. But that's part of getting older. That's a part of getting older. All right, trade deadline is Thursday, two days away. There are three big names out there. I think at least one of them gets traded. Kyle Lowry, 
uh, Andre Drummond and LaMarcus Aldridge. There's been reports Miami and Philly are the front runners there for Kyle Lowry. I don't see it happening. I, I at least not for Philly. I know Daryl Morey is probably going to make a big push for it. I'm okay with them not doing it, to be honest, but they would sacrifice defensively. I mean, the Sixers are the number one defensive team in basketball right now. Number one defensively in all of basketball. That is hard to do, and that's without Joel Embiid, by the way. Like, they're playing really, really good defense. The offense needs to be better, but when Joel Embiid comes back, that will help. Kyle Lowry's a good defender. I just – I'm okay with Kyle Lowry not being on the Sixers. I think he'd be an awesome fit on the Heat. I think what they've seen out of Tyler Hero to this point has been kind of disappointing. I mean, he's averaging like 17 points a game. But I think after that crazy 40-point game he had in the playoffs last year, 37, whatever it was, where he's just gone off for three in that whole playoff run, honestly, he played really well. I think that might have been a little more of an anomaly, or at least we're probably still a few years away from that. And with Jimmy Butler in his prime, the clock's ticking, man. And if you can make a move to pull in, you know uh, – Kyle Lowry, I mean, the way the Heat are constructed, they're not going to beat Brooklyn. There's not. I don't even think they can beat Philly or Milwaukee. Though I think they'd be a dangerous matchup against both teams, and that might go six games. I don't think they can actually beat them. I definitely don't think they can beat Brooklyn, and I would be surprised if they could actually beat, whether it be the Lakers or maybe even the Clippers. I don't know. I mean, the Western Conference just feels like the wild, wild West right now, which I guess is kind of perfect, actually. so just keep your eye on, on the trade deadline. We saw P.J. Tucker get traded. We'll probably see some other smaller trades happen. Andre Drummond makes too much money to get bought out. I just hope he doesn't get bought out. If he gets bought out and he ends up going to, like, the Lakers or Brooklyn, just, ugh. I mean, the guy's not awesome, but he gets you 15 rebounds. Like, he leads the league in rebounding almost every single year. I don't know. If he's, if he's your fourth or fifth best player, like he would be in Brooklyn, that would suck. That would just suck for the rest of the league, to be perfectly honest. Because this this year has been really good, and I think the playoffs are going to be phenomenal. Because I think they're both oh, kind of open in both sides. Yes, Brooklyn is really good, but we're seeing it right now again with Kyrie. Like Kyrie is not the most reliable guy. James Harden has never played well in the postseason. And Kevin Durant's kind of banged up, so... I think there's still some question marks surrounding the Brooklyn Nets, despite all the talent that they have there. Uh, and LaMarcus Aldridge, I mean, he would have been a fun piece to put on, you know, like Charlotte. But without LaMelo, are they really going to make a move? I, I don't know. There'll be some team that ends up with LaMarcus Aldridge. Maybe he's a more realistic, you know, candidate to go to Brooklyn. Maybe you send him back to Portland if he'd be open to that. Go play with Dame again. That would be a fun reunion. Golden State, if Golden State's trying to make a run. I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if there's a – it's a weak trade market this year. And also because of the playing games, I think a lot more teams are hesitant to make trades because more teams have a chance to make the playoffs. And there's going to be less teams that are sellers at the deadline, which means just overall less talent available. Last thing here as we wrap up the pod, uh, sad news that came out over the weekend involving Elgin Baylor who passed away at the age of 86. Elgin Baylor, obviously, I never watched him play. um, But it's important to listen to the people who are his contemporaries or grew up watching him. The Charles Barkleys of the world, who came a few, you know, decades later, but remember watching Elgin Baylor as a kid. Elgin Baylor might be the most 
underappreciated, underrated, disrespected because his peers admired him as much as anyone. But he's one of the greatest superstars of all time that never really got the credit he deserved post-career. You know, he played with the logo, Jerry West out in uh, L.A. He's a 10-time, 11-time All-Star, 10-time All-NBA player. Contemporaries playing with guys like Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson. And, of course, his teammate was Jerry West. So it's sad news. Um, Andy Katz said this on CBS, which is very similar to what I was thinking when, when the news broke. It's just it's it's very sad that we're seeing this kind of gen this generation of athletes have we've lost a lot of them this year both athletes coaches major figures uh, during a really fascinating time in American sports culture um, back when these guys were civil rights activists kind of like what we're seeing now with the current NBA players these guys made a difference they created the NBA they created a lot of these sports leagues, and it's not just the NBA, it's college basketball, John Thompson, John Chaney. Um, we're seeing a lot of these guys start to kind of move on uh, to their, to whatever is next in this life and, or after this life. And I just, I pray for them and their family. It's, it's crazy, but at the same time, you know, it's nice to take a moment and, and make sure that we, we pay respects for what they did um, because without them, we don't have the NBA today. And for maybe some of you out there, that's not that big of a deal. But uh, for millions of people around the world, it, it really is. So, um, again, just prayers up to his family and everything else and, and, and everyone who who is mourning uh, a true legend of the game. So, uh, RIP Elgin Baylor. Gone, but definitely not forgotten. That is all I have for you all today. Thank you for indulging on a long but more in-depth version of Sports Gumbo came in hot right out of the top, right? I mean, that's the the Luigi, the Louisiana kick. I'm muffling my words. It's time to get out of here. Thank you very much for listening to the show. Like, rate, review, subscribe, share it. Please share it with a friend. Share it with me. Just tag me in something on social media. If, if you're listening to this point in the pod and you've heard it, like it, tag me in something, whether it be on Instagram, uh, on Twitter, tag the read option. But just again, thank you for listening. The support has been awesome. And we are going to be back here uh, next, uh, later on this week. We're going to do a whole free agency recap, maybe do a little college football preview. And of course, we're going to make our Sweet 16 predictions as we get ready for getting close to the Final Four. We got another weekend of the madness ahead, and I am so excited. So thank you all for listening. We will be back later. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And remember, as always, Take it easy, y'all.